Pastor John's message this morning comes out of the book of Romans, chapter 7, verses 7 through 12. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. And I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin became alive, and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. Let's pray together. You've been with us, Lord. You've been with us as we have worshipped in song and prayer and praise and scripture. And now, Lord, we worship in preaching and in listening and responding and savoring the sweetness, the sovereignty of our great God and his Son, Jesus Christ. Father, you are great. There is none like you. Don't leave us to ourselves in this last portion of worship. Brood, I pray, by your Spirit over this people. And may the weight of glory be felt. Make yourself known in this room by your word, I pray. And humble us as we come to know our sin. And purify us. And empower us. And set us free to love and to witness and to lay down our lives for the high calling of magnifying Christ in the world. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Through Jesus Christ, amen. Today is Palm Sunday. It's that moment when Jesus was moving into Jerusalem in the last week of his life. And it gets all of its significance from why he was coming to to that city. Why was he coming? Now let me read his answer to that question. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, and spit on him, and scourge him, and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. He's going to be killed. That's why he's coming into the city. Why this city? 
Here's his answer. I must journey on today and tomorrow and the next day, for it cannot be that a prophet would perish outside Jerusalem. I'm on my way to perish. There's an intentionality about this, isn't there? There's a plan here. There's an intention here to die. Why? I'll read his answer. The Son of Man, Jesus said, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Ransom? What is ransom? Somebody's captive somewhere? There's got to be a ransom paid to get somebody free? Who's that? That's us. That's you and me. Our sin is our captor. Its power and its guilt hold us fast. The ransom note said death. One way to escape from my sin, a substitute, the life of Jesus paid as ransom, Jesus said. That's what Palm Sunday is about. Coming intentionally to this city to die so that the life offered up in death would pay a ransom sufficient to liberate everyone who believes in him. That's what Palm Sunday is about. Which means that the book of Romans, where we've been for several years, is an exposition of the meaning of Palm Sunday, Maundy Thursday, Good Friday, and Easter. Romans is an unpacking of why that last week? Why a cross? Why three days in the tomb? Why a resurrection from the dead? Why so much plan and intentionality going into this death? And Romans massively unfolds it for us. Chapters 1 to 5 describes our need for it and our condition and then the glorious provision of through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus a justification by grace alone through faith alone apart from works of the law. In other words, all of us ungodly people by simple trust in a Redeemer, Jesus Christ, can have all of our sins forgiven for His sake, clothed with the righteousness for His sake, adopted into the family of God for His sake, given inheritance of everlasting life for His sake alone. Not to Him who works, but to him who trusts in the one who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. Chapter 4, verse 5, one of the greatest verses in the Bible for sinners like us. Not to the one who works, but to him who trusts in the one who justifies the ungodly. Unthinkable. His faith is reckoned as righteousness. Now, here we are at the end of chapter 5, and Paul is in big trouble. 
He's in trouble because of grace and he's in trouble because of law. Somebody hears all this message about justification by grace, through faith, apart from works of the law, and they say, oh, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? He's in trouble here. He's made it sound like if you get saved this way, by grace, through faith alone, it's going to result in a life of license and lawlessness. So he's in trouble because of grace. And he's in trouble because of law. Because he's not only said, you don't need to keep the law to get right with God. (gasps) He also said, law teams up with sin to make sin worse. So he's in trouble because of law. He said too much about grace and not enough about law. What's he going to do? Now, this is important because this structures the whole book of Romans from here on out. Chapter 6 is the defense of grace. Chapter 7 is the defense of law. Paul knows that the preaching of justification by grace through faith alone gets you in trouble. Causes misunderstandings, makes the phone ring. And so... He backs up. He'd love to go straight to chapter 8. Wouldn't we love him to go straight to chapter 8? The great 8, as the Puritans called it. Let's get to 8, and we will. 2002. (laughs) Maybe earlier. But before he gets there, he's going to defend grace, chapter 6, and he's going to defend law. Chapter 7. So we've been over 6. How did he defend it? The accusation was, well, if we're not under law but under grace, then shall we continue in sin? Or let's all continue in sin that grace may abound. His answer, his defense is no. No. When you are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, apart from works of the law, it never produces more sinning than before. Never. Rather, justification by grace alone, through faith alone, apart from performances of the law, always becomes a base of operation from which we can engage in a life long warfare against sin in our lives. And it's the only base that'll work. Every bomber that flies out over the strongholds remaining of sin in our lives and drops bombs down on to blow up sin takes off from the base of justification by grace alone through faith alone. Every missile that we shoot at incoming temptation We launch those missiles from one place alone, or they don't get launched. Namely, justification by faith alone, apart from works of the law. The whole operation, I I won't call it desert storm, I'll call it operation sanctification. The whole operation of lifelong warfare, and believe me, I'm 55, I was hoping it'd be different when I was 25, it's not. 
lifelong warfare against sin in our lives, nobody else's, just my life, that lifelong operation sanctification, that warfare is sustained by one thing from one place, a lifeline, a supply line of the Spirit that comes from the base called justification by grace alone through faith alone. And it is an unassailable, sure, rock-solid base, and the enemy cannot have it. That's the only way we will triumph over sin. And so the answer in defense of grace is no. You don't sin that grace may abound. Standing in this base of operation, you launch missiles, you send bombers, you fight with all your might as a secure, accepted, loved, forgiven, vindicated, justified, ungodly, undeserving person on your way to heaven. Okay. Grace is okay. Grace is okay. What about law, Paul? You've really dumped on law. You've said some awfully negative things about God's holy word. The revealed will of God is called law in the Bible. And you have said it's not necessary at the beginning of the Christian life to get right with God. And you have said that it gets complicitous with sin to stir sin up and make it worse. So what are you going to say about law? And that's where we are. Chapter 7, verse 7. So let's go there. I said one thing about it last week, one brief, simple thing. Namely, it's good for us to know our sin. And you don't have to experiment with temptation and toy with sin to get to know your sin. In fact, I argued that if you give in early to temptation, you never learn the power of sin. You don't ever feel the hundred pounds cutting into your side. If you give away at 50 pounds. So that was all I wanted to say last week. It's really important to know our sin. Now, the question today I want to ask is, how does the law help me know me as a sinner? And I'll just say again from last week, I'm assuming here this is good for me and you and our church and our families, and our marriages, and our parenting, and our friends, and our jobs. It is so good for us to know who we are as sinners. This is very much against the grain, I know, of contemporary, rah-rah American Christianity. And I'm telling you, this is precious. This is sweet. The power of knowing me as a sinner for the sake of Noel, and Talitha, and Barnabas, and Abraham, and Benjamin, and Karsten is incalculable. Dads who don't know themselves broken by their own sin aren't going to be very good dads or good husbands. Let's read these two verses and get into it. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? This is verse 7 of chapter 7. Is the law sin? So he's defending law now. You can hear the accusation. You've made the law out to be sin. He answers, may it never be. On the contrary, I would have not come to no sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For the law, apart from the law, sin is dead. 
So what's his argument? What's his defense? Very simply, right off the bat, his defense is the law is not sin. It exposes sin as sin. It's not sin. It exposes sin as sin. And when it does, he admits, look at verse 8, that sin gets worse sometimes. Sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. Now, you all know the function. You know how this works. And you know what it's like to be the blamed one. If you're a Christian and you've been a Christian for a while and you obey the Bible, then you've probably all done something like this. You've seen a family member or a friend or a child who's got some sin, a fault. It's hurting the family or it's hurting the business or it's hurting a relationship. It's hurting them. It's not good. It's, not, it's just wrong. And you have followed the Bible, Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. You who find another taken in a fault, restore such a one in a spirit of meekness, looking to yourself, lest you too be tempted. In other words, you don't just judgmentally walk into that minefield and say, you've got sin in your life. You say, Lord, i got sin in my life. You remember Jesus' words, don't take the speck out of your brother's eye when you have a log hanging out of your own eye. Eye surgery with logs hanging out of your eyes will cause great injury to the patient. So first you take the log out of your eye. Then it says you will see clearly to take the speck. So it doesn't say don't ever do anything like this. Get in people's lives. Help them. But do it humbly, lovingly, meekly, self-questioningly. So you've tried this, right? You've tried this. <laughs> and one of the things that happens often is... The very sin you're trying to point out flares up and gets worse in your face. And who gets blamed? You do. We know this. And you feel at that moment unjustly blamed. And you know what? So does the law feel unjustly blamed. That's what Paul's trying to get across here in verse 8. Sin... Yes, it is made worse often by the law. It does stir up. The law does become an instrument of that kind of flare-up. But don't blame the law. Blame sin. You shouldn't have been blamed at that moment. Had you cleansed? Had you done it biblically? So I'm asking today, how does the law help me know my sin? And I ask it because I want to benefit from the law all I can. And it says in verse 12, it's good, it's good, it's good. The law is good. So if one of the good purposes of the law is to teach John Piper about his sin, I want it. Go ahead. Do your work. Because I know this will be good for my marriage. I know this will be good for my parenting. I know this will be good as I try to lead the church. I know it will be good for me. Go at it. And we know it's painful. We know that. Exploratory surgery is painful, and biopsies can be painful, and diagnoses can be painful, and treatment can be painful. And we go to these doctors anyway, because we want to be well. I want to be well. I hate sin, especially mine. I hate sin in general, but I really hate mine. 
Nothing makes me more angry than when I fall short of God's expectations in my life. So I want to know this. I want to know not only the sins, I want to know the condition, the sinful condition from which the sins come. Now, you may ask me, do you see that in the text, that sinful condition thing? Beneath sins? I do, I do. Look at verse 8. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me. Now mark that. Sin produced in me coveting of every kind. Now I thought coveting was sin. What's this? Sin produced coveting. What's that? Well, coveting is sin. Coveting is sin. But Paul goes beneath that and says, there's another layer down there. Surprise! Human being, get to know you. There's another thing, there's another reality beneath your sinnings, even your heart desire sinnings. There's another layer called, he just calls it sin. And it produces stuff like covetousness. So covetousness isn't the bottom line. There's something called Sin. Now, there's some other words for it. I've called it sinful condition. Here's an old-fashioned word for it. Depravity. Here's another old-fashioned word for it. Fallenness. If you're a believer, you trust Jesus, you've been born again, the Holy Spirit's in your life, here's a way of describing it. Remaining corruption. We need categories like this, because if you don't know that category, remaining corruption, you are hyper-naive about yourself. If you don't know that as a born-again believer, there's some of that junk there that needs ongoing warfare, reckoning ourselves dead to it day in and day out, fighting, putting to death the deeds of the, the body by the Spirit. So... Now what I've learned from Romans 7, 8 is that beneath my coveting is a me, a condition called sin. He treats, he treats this word sin, singular, like a power or almost like a person. And the reason I think that is because he says it's looking for opportunities. You see that? It takes opportunity Verse 8, through the commandment, it will even, wicked that it is, it will even look to the holy, just, good law of God and say, ah, here's an opportunity to make sin flourish. That's what my nature does. That's who I am. That's called prostitution of the law of God. I will take this holy, pure, and beautiful thing, prostitute it to my purposes to exalt myself. 
You can do it by license or you can do it by legalism. So I want to ask now, again, how does it work? How does the law work to help me know that? Help me know that layer, that layer down at the bottom called sin. Not just my coveting, but the thing that produces my coveting. And the way he says it works is that you, you, you get to know your coveting. He says, I wouldn't have known what it was to covet. See verse 7? I wouldn't have known what it was to covet if the law had said you shall not covet. So evidently, the way the law teaches me about that subterranean condition of sin in me is by informing me about the stuff it produces and the connection between the two. So here's my question. Why did Paul, to illustrate the, the dynamics of my heart, choose the Tenth Commandment? Thou shalt not covet. Why didn't he choose thou shalt not commit adultery? Why didn't he choose thou shalt not steal? Thou shalt not kill? Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain? Keep the Sabbath holy. Have no other gods. Why this one? Why this one? Let's analyze it for a minute. Covet. What is that? Covet. It's an utterly religious word, isn't it? I mean, if you use the word covet downtown, people look at you. You've been to church, haven't you? <laughs> covet. That's a religious word. Well, it was not a religious word. Epithumeo in Greek means desire, period. There's no, there's no fandangle religious twist to it. And hadam, the Hebrew word, same thing, desire. Desire God, desire sex, all the same. It's not a fancy word. It's the same old ordinary word, desire, in the Old Testament. Thou shalt not desire thy neighbor's wife. Thou shalt not desire thy neighbor's house. It's just desire. So you don't have to ever use the word covenant again. I give you permission. You can drop it out of your vocabulary if it doesn't help. And you can stick in the word desire, which will really get you in trouble. Thou shalt not desire this or that. So here's the implication, though. There are good desires and there are bad desires. I, had, I, you know, I can't say there are, there's good coveting and bad coveting, which shows how bad the translation is. There are good desires and there are bad desires. Well, what is coveting? What are the bad ones? What are the bad ones? What makes a desire a bad desire? Not this is three or four sermons, but let's put it in a sentence. Bad desires or coveting are desires that arise because you are losing your contentment in God and all that he is for you in Jesus. As the delight in God, satisfaction in God, love for God, contentment in God, resting in God begins to wane, other compensating desires begin to rise. And when you're, you're, you're ravished by God and His love and His acceptance and His glory and justice and goodness and truth, then these desires for things that we shouldn't do or have, they go down. This is why desires can be so good. Because when God is high in our affections, our desires for Him and His ways are really strong. Why? Because they show Him great. 
And when these other desires start to rise, like covetousness, they cry him down and show that he's not sufficient, he's not adequate, he's not our treasure, he's not our diamond. And these other things must be. And so the world will look at us and they'll say, well, I guess you cherish the same things I do. And he's dishonored. And those things are honored. That's why desires are massively important. And why the Ten Commandments ends, you shall not have unwarranted desires. So, now, why did he choose that? Why does he choose that particular command? You won't know your desires as evil until you get the commandment, don't have them. Does that mean you don't covet until they come? The command, until the command comes, you don't covet? You don't sin until the, the law says stop sinning? No. We know that from chapter 6, chapter 5, chapter 2. If you want one verse, chapter 5, verse 13, before the law was in the world, sin was in the world, producing death. Chapter 5, verse 13. So we know that when it says in verse 8, apart from the law, sin is dead. What is that? Apart from the law, sin is dead. That doesn't mean there's no sin there. And it doesn't mean it's not killing you or hurting people. It doesn't mean that. Well, what, what does it mean? I think it means this. Until the law comes... Our sin is not known as sin. It's not felt as sin. It's not experienced as sin. The desires we have until an external authority or standard lands on us, our desires are law. They're not felt as sin until there's somebody coming into our face saying, you know, you shouldn't desire that. What's that? Our desires were just running free. They weren't experienced as sin. They were just fulfilling our, 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 our desires, our heart. And there they were. And then along comes some commandment or prohibition or limitation and cuts right across our desire path and says, you shouldn't have that desire. And then sin is alive. Not in that it wasn't there doing stuff, but we see it as sin. Here And before then, it was there lurking as sin, functioning as sin. But we didn't see it as sin. We didn't experience it as sin. So, we're almost there. How does the law help us know our wrong desire? But now, I want to know, how does it help me know my condition? down deep. How does the law in confronting me with don't covet reveal to me the source of the coveting for what it really is, which I've never recognized before? Well, the law comes in and he says, and this is why the command to desire is so crucial, says, stop having those desires. And at that moment, I am exposed for who I really am beneath the desires, namely, sovereign, autonomous God. I will decide what I desire. 
I will decide what's good for me and bad for me, what is beautiful and ugly, what is right and wrong, what is true and false. I will decide. And this law comes in and says, you won't decide. And and that deep, deep thing in me called my self-deification, my rebellion, my independence, resist that with all of its might. Thank you. I will be my own God. You don't tell me what is right and wrong for me, good and bad for me, true and false for me, beautiful and ugly for me. And there we are at the bottom. There's the John Piper that happened in Adam. Oh, this fruit, this is good to make one wise. This is beautiful to the eyes. This will be tasty to the mouth. And God in heaven is saying, no, it won't. And at that moment, the whole human race became like God. And that's been our identity ever since. We will be God. We will decide what is right and wrong. We will decide what is good and bad. We will decide what is true and false. And we never know that that's who we are. We never know ourselves as rebels. We never know ourselves as independent. We never know ourselves as feisty, AWOL soldiers until the king of the universe speaks and says, don't do that anymore. (gasps) Try this out on your children. I mean, this is not news. And and if there are not many children in here because Sunday school is going on, but at this point in the service, I could say, now, children, I've used some big words, sovereignty, autonomy, deity, self-deification. You don't have a clue what I'm talking about. But you know this, that when you want a toy that your friend has and you grab it because you want it and your mommy says, don't do that, that's wrong. The words that come out of your mouth are, but I want. And in that little person's head, but I want is law. It's the end of the argument. That's the bottom line reason why I should have it. I want it, therefore I should have it. Desire equals deserve. Before the law comes. We are our own law. What I want, I do until a law comes. And then I got to make a choice. There's a God of the universe and the law says God will decide what's right and wrong. God will decide what's good and bad. God will decide what's true and false. God will decide what's beautiful and ugly. And you can submit or die. And oh, the rebellion in our hearts. This is why I say it's so good for us. It's so good for us to know this, to discover this. At last to see, I'm not just a little doer of sins. Oh, everybody sins. Everybody covets a little. Everybody lies a little. Everybody steals a little. Everybody does a little pornography on the side. 
That's not, that's not the problem. The problem is that stuff's coming from somewhere. And it's coming from you. And it's wicked. And it's called rebellion. It's called the flesh, chapter 7, verse 5, chapter 8, verses 7 and 8. And the flesh cannot submit to God's law because it will not. Because it is so rebellious and so independent and so sovereign. And if we're willing to let the words come out of our mouth, so godlike in its rebellion against the one and only God. That's what the law teaches us. That's what, that's what I need to know. That's what I need to know. And you need to know it too. Who are you? Let me try to draw this to a close. It's Palm Sunday, right? Crucify him, crucify him on Friday. Hosanna, son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord on Sunday. This is wicked. People waving palm branches on Sunday and crying crucify him on Friday. Palm Sunday, Maundy Thursday, Good Friday, Easter is all about this. Chapters 1 to 5 is the solution for how ungodly. That word ungodly is not a throwaway word in chapter 4, verse 5, where it says, not to him who works, but to him who trusts in the one who justifies the ungodly. That's not a throwaway word. That's me. Now, chapter 7 is trying to help me know me. Why? So that I will cherish Christ. Cherish the cross. Cherish faith as the way rather than performances that I can't do. So, there are believers in this room. And no doubt, some unbelievers in this room. For believers, I just long for you to trust Him more. Look away from yourself. It is so deadly. Believer and unbeliever alike, right now as we close, don't say, oh my God, you might be exactly right about me, so I've got to go in here and get this fixed. Never start that way. Don't start that way. You can't fix it. You will never measure up. Ever, ever in this world will you measure up to the holiness of God. There is one way home. Look away from yourself. Look away from the corruption. Yes, I've just spent, what, I don't know how long, 30 minutes telling you to look in and get to know yourself. Now I'm telling you, quit that. (laughs) And look out to the cross where all the righteousness is provided, all the condemnation is borne, and let there flow the simple, I'll trust that. I'll trust Him. And then this stuff, which remains, and we begin to drop bombs on it, we begin to shoot missiles at it, and we engage in operation sanctification for the rest of our lives. But in the end, that saves us. That saves us. And that is gloriously good news. Oh, tis so sweet to trust in Jesus and to take him at his word, just to rest upon his promise, just to know, thus saith the Lord, Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I proved him o'er and o'er. 
Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust him more. Would you stand with me? Jesus, hundreds and hundreds in this room right now mean that from the bottom of our heart. Help us, answer us. We want to trust you more. Trust you for forgiveness. Trust you for righteousness. Trust you for the Spirit. Trust you for courage. Trust you for help in sickness and in tough situations this week. We want to trust you. Help us to trust you. And for the unbeliever, Lord, who's at a crisis moment in their lives, bring them on in, I pray. And all the people said, Amen. You're dismissed.